stand together. I'm going to read the 13 verses of that psalm, including the beginning inscription before the first verse. And then we'll go ahead and get into this psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You've brought back the captivity of Jacob. You've forgiven the iniquity of your people. You've covered all their sin. Selah. You've taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in the land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. And Father, we pray that as we look at this psalm that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that we would see your favor, the way that you've shown favor to us, our God. Do your work in our hearts. Lord, do that work of molding us into the image of Jesus. Pour your spirit out that he might give to us the understanding that we need to have and can only have as he gives it to us. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the favor you have shown us, God. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin this 85th psalm, we see that this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, to the chief musician, uh, that we have that in the majority of the psalms in, in the inscription. Uh, this one being a psalm of the sons of Korah. And um, one of the things to make note of is that in the King James Version, it would read a psalm for the sons of Korah. Uh, but in all of the modern translations, um, New King James Version, New American Standard Version, the uh, English Standard Version and all, NIV, uh, they all say of the sons of Korah, which would mean that the uh, translators believe that it was written by transcend, uh, the uh, descendants of, of, uh, of Korah. Um, I do want to read, though, what C.H. Uh, Spurgeon wrote on this. Um, 
Of course, he wrote this some 140, 150 years ago, uh, before the, the any of the other modern translations that I that I listed uh, were were um, given to us. Uh, but he he wrote this. He said, "Our own belief is that David penned this national hymn when the land was oppressed by the Philistines, and in the spirit of prophecy, he foretold the peaceful years of his own reign." And the, and the repose of the rule of Solomon, the psalm having all along an inner sense of which Jesus and his salvation are the key. The presence of Jesus, the Savior, reconciles earth and heaven and secures to us the golden age, the balmy days of universal peace. Now, within the, the uh, text that we see here, uh, we, we have no real indication of what the occasion for the writing is. Uh, we, we do see that uh, when we see the writer writing of the captivity, we have some thoughts about, about possibly the captivity uh, in, um, in Babylon, for example. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. And uh, I want to read something that Alexander McLaren noted also in regard to this psalm. He wrote, The book of Nehemiah supplies precisely such a background as fits this psalm. A part of the nation had returned indeed, but to a ruined city, a fallen temple and a mourning land, where they were surrounded by jealous and powerful enemies. So there are those who believe that it was around that time of Nehemiah and Ezra and so forth after they had returned after the Lord had brought them back to Jerusalem uh, after the captivity in Babylon. Another commentator wrote this, Even if this psalm belongs to an earlier period, such as the end of, of Saul's reign, which is um, uh, suggested by uh, Spurgeon, actually, no, uh, yeah, suggested by Spurgeon, um, God's people find themselves in this place from time to time, and this beautiful psalm is appropriate. And, and, and I, I like that thought. You know, just the idea that, that as we try to nail down what the occasion for the writing may be so that we can kind of set it in a, into a historical context, which is not a bad thing to do, you know, um, because it's not specifically stated, we can't know for sure. And, 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 it, and it's all conjecture at that point. But... What's important is the fact that this was written and recognized as God's word. It's in the Old Testament. It's a chapter or one of the Psalms in the book of Psalms, of course. And so we see it as God's word written uh, for the purpose of us acknowledging the favor that God has shown even in the midst of, of life as we go through trials and sometimes are taken into captivity, maybe in our cases, by some sin, or whatever the case may be, right? So, so it, it applies to us in that way uh, in any case. Let's read verses 1 through 3 once again. Lord, you've been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin, Selah. 
You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Basically, the psalmist is writing here, acknowledging the favor that God had shown to Israel. Not just a particular person, but to Israel as a nation. You've been favorable to your land. You've brought back the captivity of Jacob, another way of referring to the nation of Israel, of course. So, so th this is, as uh, Spurgeon noted, it's, it's a, a, a national hymn of sorts written by uh, the, the psalmist, one that the, the people of Israel can, can, uh, can quote and, and, and recite out of thankfulness to God for what he has done. And this favor we see here uh, is shown through uh, the deliverance of the people of Israel from captivity. Now again, whether it is being captive to uh, the Philistines at the end of Saul's reign, or the captivity to uh, Assyria uh, about a hundred or so years before uh, Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon uh, took Jerusalem, you know, and, and then that captivity. You know, whatever it may be, again, these words would apply in, in any case. But we see here that the writer also speaks not only of the deliverance from the captivity, but also that that deliverance is a sign of forgiveness. It's a sign of uh, covering the sin of the people, not necessarily individual people, but I think that's the way we need to take it, our own individual forgiveness from God as, as he delivers us from the captivity of sin. That's a particular way that we need to look at this. But notice what the, what the writer says here. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You've covered all their sin, taken away your wrath, all your wrath, have turned from the fierceness of your anger. So, so this idea of forgiveness is written in several different ways here in this passage, which is you know, uh, just a, a common trait of what we see in Hebrew poetry, the same thing said, repeated, just in different phrases, different terms, as, as a means of emphasis. Uh, for what God has done. But as, as we read these things, though, just wonderful things that are, are written here in regard to this forgiveness. McLaren adds to this, these words, that the psalmist uses two significant words for pardon, both of which occur in Psalm 32, 1 through 11. Let me, I want to read Psalm 32, 1, which says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You know, uh, King David begins this psalm, which is a, a psalm which, which speaks of the forgiveness of God, specifically dealing with David having received forgiveness for his sin uh, with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. That's what Psalm 32 is all about. But as McLaren goes on, he says in Psalm 85, uh, Verse 2, sin is regarded as a weight pressing down the nation 
which God's mercy lifts off and takes away. That's the word forgiven. And then the word covered would be, it is conceived of as a hideous stain or foulness, that sin would be conceived as, a hideous stain or foulness, which his mercy hides or covers, so that it is no longer an offense to heaven. Heaven doesn't see it, in other words, because it's covered. And of course, we know that it's covered by the blood of the Lamb. You know, what can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, that term is, is something that, that we sing often. I mean, that, that, those words are, th are th something we sing often, you know, and it's something that's in our hearts. It's only the blood of Jesus that can wash away our sins. But th th those sins are, are covered, and thus legally, in the sense of our relationship with God, uh, in terms of uh, the legal aspects of, of sin and so forth, they're removed from us as far as the east is from the west, as we see in Psalm 103. And so th this idea of, of, of forgiveness and, and the wrath of God, it is taken away. The, the wrath has been taken away, as we see there in verse 3. Acknowledging that the pouring out of God's wrath was complete with whatever sense the captivity was. And this would be, you know, uh, whether it was uh, the, the Philistines or, or the Bab Babylonians, but, uh, let's just kind of settle in on the Babylonians just for the sake of con conversation, okay? But the people knew based on what the, 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 the um, prophets were, were telling them that God did not want to take them into captivity, but if they would not repent, he would have to because of their own sin, and then he would lay out what the sin would be. The people understood that. They heard what the prophets, prophets would say, whether, whether it was Jeremiah or, or, or Isaiah before him or whatever the case was. They understood that God only would bring this because of their sin and a failure to repent. And yet, of course, we know that they never did. So based on that understanding, the psalmist is saying we deserved the captivity and the punishment that we received now is satisfactory to you and you have taken away your wrath. That, that's the idea of what they are, of what, what he is saying here. In these verses two and three, James Montgomery Boyce said something that is very interesting. He said, some of the strongest salvation language in Scripture is present in these verses. Covered their sins describes what is meant by atonement. Set aside your wrath is what is meant by the word propitiation. Just the concept of what salvation is is very well described here in these verses. When we think about atonement, which, which speaks about our sins being removed so that we can have a relationship with God, I want to read something out of Leviticus chapter 16. Now, this is when God is, is speaking to Moses about what the Day of Atonement is all about. And in verses 1 through 34... 
And yeah, I want to read all 34. I, I, was, I, was, I, I was just kind of thinking, which passages can I take? It is all so heavy. And the thing is that there is so much here about sacrifices that need to be offered, blood that needs to be spilled, um, multiple times for a high priest as he would go before the Lord and then go before the people and then sacrifices for himself, sacrifices for the people, and all of this, and blood being sprinkled uh, on the Ark of the Covenant and so forth, on the mercy seat and so forth. It's like, it's incredible here. And I want to read this to you. I want you to follow along. So I want you to get the sense of what the people of Israel experienced on the Day of Atonement in the sense of these sacrifices. I mean, this is something that we are not familiar with experientially, only by reading about it and hearing about it. We're not, we, we've never seen it. We've never heard it. We've never watched it. I just want to read all 34 of those verses, and then we'll talk about it a little bit afterward. Verses 1 and 34. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. Now I want to pause there for a second. You guys are familiar with what happened with, with the two sons of Aaron when they offered that strange fire or that prof profane fire, which, which uh, specifically is just sim simply... Because many, many people ask, well, what did they offer? It was so profane that, that, it, was, that, that it was a strange kind of a fire. Well... It was something that was not uh, given to them to do by the Lord. That's what it was. It was not given by God. That's what made it strange or profane. Anyway, and, and, and as he goes here, it's like that was profane, that was strange, that was ungodly, not from him. This is the way to do it kind of a thing, you know. So uh, verse 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash and with the linen turban. He shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. 
Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it, and concentrate it, consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness." Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out, and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. That basically means humble yourselves. You, sh you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement 
and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now that's a long passage. But did you get the sense of the bloodiness of the whole thing? You know, um, I am totally convinced, and I think it's pretty obvious, the people of Israel at that time when they were practicing this, and, well, especially the high priest, had a really good understanding of the gravity of their sin. And I would say much more than we do. Much more than we do. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, uh, the writer to the Hebrews said, For such a high priest was fitting for us, speaking of Jesus, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests, what we just talked about, um, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Then in Hebrews again, chapter 9, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then again, Hebrews 10.10, 10, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, one of the things with the people of Israel, you know, I mean, they would do the offerings and sacrifices on a daily basis, but once a year, the Day of Atonement, right? But they were very familiar with the sights and sounds of animal sacrifices. Have, have, anyone, have any of you ever heard a cow being slaughtered? It's not pleasant. Uh, when uh, You guys know that I've been to Africa a couple of times, and, and on, on some occasions... Uh, Pastor Wes Bentley wants to bless the, the um, chaplains with some beef. And well, they would get a cow, and about 6.30 in the morning, we would he hear this cow wailing and bellowing because he was getting his throat slit. And it's like, oh, we're going to have some beef tonight. You know, I mean, that's, kinda, that's what that meant. Uh, they didn't prepare it like we go to a restaurant and see it prepared or we cook it at home. It wasn't uh, as good, and the beef is, you know, I mean, kind of tough. Not like what we're used to in America. But they were, it's a, it was a treat for them to receive beef. But the point is, the point that I'm trying to make is, I mean, you, you can hear this animal, animal just bellowing in pain and wailing. You know, and... Uh, we could we would walk by later to to go to one uh, our our first class that we were that we were holding there for the chaplains, and that place where they were that they had executed this 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 uh, cow 
It was just being cleaned up. The blood was being washed down the drain and stuff like that so that we wouldn't have to see it. But, you know, um, we, we as Americans in the 21st century, as sanitized as our culture is, especially living in the suburbs, we don't, we don't know that. We don't, we're not familiar with this. And, and God had his people go through these actions in order that their sin could be removed. And they had to do it on a regular basis because animals could not forever cleanse them like the blood of Jesus does, as we read from Hebrews. And the offering of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus as he offered himself, you know, uh, I, I think of, you know, the, the, the movie that, that, that was made for us to watch, the, um, what, what is it? Passion. The Passion of the Christ, yes. Um, I, I, I think that was a blessing for us to be able to see that movie in the sense that for the first time we got some sense of understanding of the incredible gruesomeness and horror of crucifixion was and the beating that Jesus took before he was actually crucified. I'd never seen anything so realistic in regard to that before, you know? And as horrible as it was to watch, It also was an incredible blessing to me because the way that I related that was that, that is so horrible and the pain so great and, and yet the horror of it and the extre extremity of, of the hor horror of it shows to us the extremity of the love of Jesus for us as well. You know, so it's like that, that was a, a real blessing in that way. people of Israel understood, again, between the blood, the crying out of the animals, uh, uh, the, the high priest needing to change his clothes because of his contact with, with, with the animals and the blood, uh, the, the guy who took the, the scapegoat out of the wilderness, he had to come and wash himself up and change clothes because sin was on that scapegoat as it was taken out to the, to the, uh, to, to the wilderness and so forth. Um, the absolute lack of purity that exists in us apart from forgiveness of sin, they understood that. And I think sometimes we just simply don't. You know, because the, 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 the crucifixion of our Savior was so far away and so long ago, we only read about it. We've seen one movie that was, that was, that was pretty... Um, uh, clear uh, about the horror of the, of the whole thing. But you know, unless we watch the movie on a yearly basis, it just remains kind of far away from us in terms of the horror of it. But the reason for it is because of the horror of our sin. You know, if we're horrified by watching Jesus be crucified, Shouldn't we be horrified about the sin that, that caused it? Right? 
So we don't get it often. But also in terms of the destructiveness of sin. We know that when sin entered into the world, every evil and wicked thing in the world entered in as well. The wickedness of the heart of man became very, very real. Um, all the sin that man commits against his fellow man and the destruction that it brings from the hurt in a, in a relationship, the hurt in a marriage relationship, other relationships, when, when, when we are disloyal to one another, when we betray one another, when we're just frustrated with each other, uh, lack of patience with each other, we can get mean with each other, whatever it might be. But even to the more, the more horrifying things of the way that evil dictators throughout the history of the world have treated people, killing and murdering thousands upon thousands, if not millions upon millions of people. That's sin in our world. The reality of, of sickness and disease and death in the world came because of sin. And guys, the world today just simply does not function the way that God created it to. Because sin has entered into the world, right? You know, whenever, whenever somebody asks you about, you know, well, if, if God is love, why, does, why, does, why is the world so evil? Tell them why. He didn't create it that way. It, it was the, the willful rebellion of men against him and sin entering into the world, and sin has done this. Sin has done this. But, you know, guys, you guys know about my situation with my wife and all, and you know what's going on with her, but I just have to say that, you know, I, I, I'm reminded on a daily basis, multiple times a day, of the reality of the devastation of the and the destructiveness of sin in our world. My wife is suffering because of it. I and the rest of my family are, are, are suffering because of it. You guys are suffering because of it, because you, you know, and, and, and because of what you know is going on with, with, with my bride, you know, but also in other ways in your own lives, you know, you've experienced it. You know, any of us who have ever mourned the loss of a loved one, we're experiencing the devastation of sin in our world. Wasn't supposed to be this way. Sin just really messed it up. But you know, when John the Baptist introduced Jesus in John 1.29, when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you know, that's why Jesus came, to do just that. That's the idea of what we see in this language in Psalm 85. You've taken away uh, or you, you have covered all their sin, forgiven the iniquity of your people, taken away the sin of the world. And yeah, you know, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but you know, we have not yet fully experienced that redemption completely. We will. 
some of our loved ones are in the presence of God right now and experiencing it in a very real, complete way in his presence. Isn't that, isn't that a cool thing to think about? And we will be there soon. We will be there soon. And some of us, obviously, sooner than others. Unless, of course, the rapture were to happen tonight. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Be the rapture happening tonight. Oh, I, I, that'd be so cool. You know, for, for us to be raptured tonight, and then I would, we would all be raised and... Uh, with our with our glorified bodies and and my my bride would be raised from Fontana to the same place with the Lord Jesus. I would just meet her there, and we'd be there forever, forevermore. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like such a wonderful thing to think about, you know. Um, but that's before us. One day we are going to experience all of that. But. I wanted to go through this because, you know, th this language is that, that speaks here in verses 2 and 3 about salvation and forgiveness and the covering of sin and, and so forth, I, I, I just wanted to just offer a reminder of how horrible, how horrific, how devastating and destructive sin is in our lives. It is easy for us to, to take it way too casually. It cost God his son. He gave him because he loved you and me so much that we might receive the forgiveness of sin. Well, going on to verse 4. The writer writes, Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. You know, in reading that, after having read verses 2 and 3, Seems somewhat contradictory, doesn't it? You know, um, for example, in verse 2, the second line, you have covered all their sin. But now he's crying out to God for restoration. Um, are you going to be angry with us forever? Ca cause your anger to, to cease. You know, it, it's as if, well maybe all of their sin hasn't been forgiven. Well, if this was indeed written at the time of Nehemiah and Ezra when the people were being brought back into uh, uh, Judah, um, that happened in, in, in waves. There were, there were several waves of people who came in to the promised land. And so it could be that the writer was overjoyed that people were beginning to come back to Jerusalem, but there were still a lot of, 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 of uh, Israelites in Babylon and, and in Midian and in Assyria and so forth where they were scattered. They hadn't all come back yet. And so it's like it wasn't a complete restoration. So the writer is asking perhaps for a, a, 
a more complete restoration than what they are seeing here. Or it could simply be that the psalmist is remembering God's restoration in the past and asking for a restoration now again because the people have strayed once again. Some other kind of situation has arisen, some other kind of captivity perhaps. Maybe uh, we, 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 we just can't know for sure exactly, but it could be either way. But note the words that we see here, again, in verse, verses 4 through 7. Restore, restore us. Um, revive us. Show us your mercy. Grant us your salvation. I mean, th these are, again, some very powerful words that are used which, which speak about God's work in his people that have to do with forgiveness. I mean, restoration. You know, uh, we are restored in relationship with God through the blood of Christ. You know, uh, re re reviving us. You know, I, wa I want to spend a little, a little bit of time talking about this idea of uh, uh, the request to, to revive us, as he says there, in verse 6, uh, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Uh, we need to do, I mean, as the psalmist did, uh, in acknowledging that God is the source of revival. I don't think any of us have a problem with that thought. God is the source of revival. But we also need to acknowledge that general revival in our land is going to start with the revival of the church. It's going to start with our own corporate church revival and really an individual within a church can have his or her own personal Revival. That can take place in many ways. It can happen at a retreat. It can happen at a night of worship. It can happen on a Sunday morning. You know, I mean, just in the sense of us coming to a place of God just revealing to us where we have gone, how we have perhaps drifted away from Him. You know, maybe on a, 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 a Sunday morning or even a Wednesday night, you know, teaching and suddenly it just hits you. The Lord just says, that's you. Come back to me. Right? That kind of a thing. And then through that um, acknowledgement and the confession, um, repentance, Restoration and revival come. Not necessarily that we had died spiritually, but there was no real practical life in the sense of us feeling close to God and experiencing His joy, uh, understanding His His will at least to some degree, you know, being used by Him and the 
and the fulfillment and joy that comes from that. You know, those kinds of things, right? Drifting away to a place of where we truly are backslidden. Revive us again. Note here also, it says that your people may rejoice in you. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Revival brings joy. Revival brings joy. Have you noticed a lack of joy within the church today? The church overall. You know, and, you know, it's, we, we, we run into to, to, to people, you know, we have relationships with some people that just seem to be more joyful than others, you know, uh, and we, we just really enjoy being around them because that, that joy just kind of spills all over you, you know. It, some people are just like that, you know, and, and uh, if, if we're not like that, we want to be. We pray that God will fill us with that joy, but I, I want you to note too the what the Apostle Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter five, in verses twenty-two to the first part of twenty-three. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we take note that the word fruit is a singular word. The following words are, are different uh, uh, characteristics or traits of that love. And the first word that follows love is joy. That's significant. A Christian with the Holy Spirit within him or her or upon him or her within and upon, I should say, should be filled with joy. We should be joyful. And if we're not, we're letting the world take something from us. No, let me, let me rephrase that. We're allowing the world to take it from us. Like we're giving the joy away by giving too much attention to the things of this world. Too much attention to the troubles and the trials in this world. We can have joy even in the midst of the toughest of trials. You know, and, and as you guys pray for me, as we're going through this trial with, with my bride, would, would you pray for me that, I, that I'm filled with joy? Pray for me for that. I need that kind of prayer. You know, not just simply peace. I mean, I mean, all the fruit of the Spirit, really. Pray that God will fill me with his spirit on a daily basis. Refill me continually so that these traits will be mine and so that people who see me and run across me would never know that this is going on at home unless they've been told. Somebody I haven't seen in a few years hasn't heard anything, you know, and do I come up with them and, and, you know, just with sadness in my countenance and just down and, 
It's like, man, that, that person, what, what's wrong, you know? We don't want to come off like that. Because the reality of God's Holy Spirit within us and upon us far outweighs anything that the enemy and what this world can do. Because my Savior is also my overcomer. He's also my overcomer. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. I, first he said, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, right? So let, let's cling to that. With, with all the things that happen in our lives, with all the troubles that come, with all of the captivity that we might experience, right? Not only do we underestimate the gravity of our own sin, we also underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. And the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that he brings. This is what should define us. The reality of God's presence within our lives. Another thing to note about this also, with this reviving and the joy, note that your people may rejoice in you. We don't rejoice because of a changed situation. We, we rejoice in one who is constant in our lives. We rejoice in him. He's the source of joy. And you know what, guys? If we keep our eyes focused on him and the reality of who he is, and all he's done for us, the reality that we have received the forgiveness of sin, and we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven, it has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ, it is sure, it is real, it cannot fade away, it always will be there. That's our future. And we already are living in that future without having yet fully experienced all the, the realities of it, physically and emotionally. But that's what we have to look forward to. And that one is with us even now. So might we seek the life and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. You know, as the psalmist writes, I'm going to hear what God has to say, because I know that he will speak peace. I know that he will speak peace. If this was written by one of the sons of Korah at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, that means that 
Jeremiah already had written, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Thoughts of peace. Isaiah 9, 6b through 7a, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. The peace, his peace, will continue to increase and never stop increasing. That's crazy. And he's in our hearts. Are we experiencing that kind of peace? He is our peace, as Ephesians 2.14 tells us. He is our peace. Spurgeon wrote, I will be silent. I have spoken to him. Now I will hear what his answer is. I will hold my ear attentive to listen to his voice. Then he goes on and says, Oh, my dear hearers, when you are willing to hear God, there are good times coming to you. One of the things about prayer is that we've got to take time to, take time to hear after we have made our request, after we've given our praise, after we've bowed in worship and then we've made our supplications and so forth. We've got to take some time to hear what he has to say to us. It's a good thing to when we pray to have your Bible open before you. Maybe it'll point out something. Maybe it'll refer you to a passage. We need to hear from him. Verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. So we see the connection between salvation and fearing God, right? And we also see a connection there. We see the second line, that glory may dwell in our land, a connection between salvation and, and glory. It brings to mind John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's our Savior, full of grace and truth. Now, verses 10 to 13, as we close, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. These are just some beautiful phrases here. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. This... Uh, Tenth verse is a beautiful description of God's salvation. Mercy and truth meeting, righteousness and peace kissing. I mean, so, some, some, some great uh, uh, um, phrases there that bring up some great Im imagery for us. But as we see this, all of this intersects with Jesus at the cross, doesn't it? It wouldn't seem that mercy and truth really can coincide together. The, 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 the truth of the matter is we are sinners who are deserving 
of God's wrath, deserving of eternal punishment. That's the truth. And, and mercy removes that. The idea of us not having to endure the proper punishment for our sinfulness. That's what mercy is. Righteousness and peace. You know, it, it all comes together at the cross. And then verse 11 says, Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. What do you see there in those words? Right, or truth shall spring out of the earth. To me, that speaks resurrection. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, sprang out of the earth on the third day, didn't he? And righteousness shall look down from heaven. God in his righteousness viewed the whole thing from above as it played out on the earth. The hope of heaven, the hope of resurrection. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. You know, the Lord is good, isn't he? It's one of the tenets of Scripture, one, one, of, one of his attributes, his goodness. Exodus 34, 6, after Moses had asked the Lord to show him his glory in the 33rd chapter, in 34, verse 6, we see these words, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. It goes on with more in the following verse. But we see that as, as the Lord God basically revealed himself to Moses, this is what he revealed, and we see that the Lord, the Lord speaks of himself as abounding in goodness and truth, abounding in goodness. Again, the idea of abounding is that there's a lot there and it continues to grow. His goodness continues to grow. Our God is good. And the reality of, this living, of us living in this sin-scarred world and having to deal with the, having to endure the, the, the pain of it, it is not an indication of who God is. It's an indication of what this world is like. But we've got to remember that God is saving us out of this world. We're just not out of it yet, in it, not of it, still here. He hasn't taken us out of the world because he wants us to talk to other people about him. He wants us to be a witness for him. But one day, we're going to be completely and totally freed from the bondages that come in this world. Totally and completely free of it. He gives, he will give what is good. 
James 1.17 tells us that every good and every perfect gift is from above. Verse 13, righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. You know, our God is so filled with righteousness, of course, that it actually goes before him. It's like it prepares his way, in a sense. You know, Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. His ways speaks about his doings, the things that he does. He's righteous in all his ways. It's as if his righteousness guides him in the things that he does. There's a sense of it there. Um, And the path that he takes is a path of complete righteousness. And if if you and I are going to follow him, we're going to follow him on that same pathway. And so verse 13, and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Walking the walk that Jesus walked, right? If we've seen him, we've seen the Father. The pathway of righteousness. And so this 85th Psalm, this prayer for revival, the reality of of, of what revival will do, what revival will bring, the the reality of of the horror of sin and all this, you know, I I think it's a great psalm that that speaks to to all these areas and gives us a good balance, you know, just to be mindful, just remember what it is that God has saved us from. And also a reminder of what it is that God has before us. You know, that's what keeps us going, isn't it? That, the understanding that there are loved ones that, they're ex- that are experiencing all this with him right now, who've gone before us. And, you know, we're, we're you know, we have a, we, 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 we want to be um, mindful of that as well as as mindful of the reality that we're going to be with our Savior sometime soon. And with our loved one who's there already, worshiping and bowing before him, serving him, doing his bidding as he gives us whatever task there may be. And especially as we move into the future and the new heaven and the new earth and all, and it's going to be so glorious, so glorious. You know, I'll be honest with you. I'm sure you guys are the same way. I can't wait to be free of this world and to be free of this fleshly body, to have a new body, free of sin, free of selfishness, to live in a a heaven and, and, and a new earth where all sin has been banished and conquered and sent away. No more devil, no more demons to deal with. Oh, it's going to be so wonderful. Can't wait for that. And so we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Father, we do pray that now. Come quickly. We pray that you would send your son quickly to begin the completion of his work. Lord, until that day comes, might we be faithful to occupy until you do come. Might we live lives of faith before you and before others. 
Lord, might we accurately portray the life of Jesus and, and all that he is filled with your spirit and, and portraying all of the fruit, all, all of those aspects of what that fruit of the spirit is, what love is, the joy being that first thing that is, that is said by Paul. God, help us. Fill us now. Go before us now. Use us to your honor and to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys.